So today we continue with the desert and the parched land. This series where we're looking at different examples of times in scripture where we come across um, situations or individuals where there is a real, um, a, a real hardship. There, there is a, a terrible event that happens. People find themselves in, in, in a, some sort of desert, whether it's literally in a desert or whether it's in a, in, in a metaphorical desert. They find themselves feeling isolated and abandoned and cut off from God or from other people. Lonely, depressed, helpless. You might think that's a pretty miserable series to be going on with. But of course we believe in a God who doesn't allow those things to happen. Or at least doesn't allow us to be abandoned, to be deserted, to be isolated, to be cut off. God is always with us when we find ourselves in those situations. And one of the great things about scripture is that it is full of examples where this happens where someone finds themselves feeling those, those very negative emotions, but actually we see God working in their lives. Today we're going to delve into a passage of scripture which arguably marks the, the low watermark in the spirituality of Old Testament Israel. It arguably marks the, the spiritual low, the most, um, the, the most deplorable of times. If you've got a Bible with you, then you'll want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, in the 29th verse, we meet King Ahab. King Ahab was arguably the worst king that Israel ever had. He, he went against so many of God's laws, God's commandments. He pretty much almost gave up on God. So we're going to take a look at what Ahab did. We're going to look at the, the political situation that was going on at the time. And these, 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 these terrible decisions that were made... Awful decisions that led to, led to bloodshed, that led to God turning his back on his people for a time. But then, but then we're going to look at the individual relationship between the individual faithful servant of God and God himself. And the way that God still works when, in, when a complex political situation is kicking off and, and, and the individuals involved look around and think, well... What am I in all this, in this huge situation? And we see a, a beautiful example of God reaching out to an individual, an abandoned, lost, helpless individual who was on the verge of giving up on life itself. And God says, you matter. You matter. And I've got you. But before we go into all that, we read in chapter 16, verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned over Samaria, over, in, in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. 
So to begin with, that's, that's, the, that, that's where we are. That sort of sets the level. So far in the history of Israel, there hasn't been anybody who's done so much damage to God's people. This is who we're dealing with. This is who we're reading about. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So immediately, he, he, you remember last week in the book of Ruth, we looked, at, we looked at Naomi and how her and her husband, Elimelech, um, they, they, they took the decision to leave, leave Bethlehem, to leave the community of God's people in which they, they'd lived because there was a famine, because things were desperate. And so they packed their bags, they left their home, they left their community, and they left God's people. They went into Moab. But you remember we wrestled a little bit, didn't we, with, with, with the situation? Because what happened there was that a section of God's people, although they, they cut themselves off, they took themselves away, they put, put themselves in, in Moabite territory. We see in the book of Ruth the way that God used that, and we see in the book of Ruth the way that Naomi in particular lived such a godly life, set such a godly example, that at the end of the first chapter when she returns to Bethlehem, there's that wonderful moment where she says to, to Ruth, you go back to your people, go, go back, you'll be fine. And Ruth makes that statement we looked at, where you go, I go, your people be my people, and your God, my God. And so you can sort of come away from that thinking, well, okay, all right, it's not God's preferred route, but actually he can use that. So that's okay, isn't it? What we see this week with King Ahab, King Ahab, he marries Jezebel. Jezebel has become a, a byword for um, immorality for questionable morals. If someone is called a, a Jezebel, it's not a, it's not a nice name to give someone. He began to serve Baal and worship him. Now, Baal is a, is a god who... There are many different accounts of what worship looked like, worship to Baal looked like. And if we read on, we get a bit of a clue... We read, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So immediately, this is, this is the uh, King Ahab, he's king over Israel, and he's setting up temples to a false god, an evil god. And I say an evil god because some scholars identify Baal worship with human sacrifice. Now that sounds a little bit sensationalist, I know, and at first I thought, mm, really? But I've read enough accounts to make me think, well, there must be something in it, because um, Christian scholars and, and historians, non-Christian scholars as well, um, they, they suggest that, that there was, Baal demanded human sacrifice at different times. He was a pretty gruesome god to worship. This wasn't a god of, of love, this was a god who demanded from his people, a God who, who, who ran a, a situation based upon fear, fear and suffering. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, 
and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So he did awful things. He was setting up altars, setting up temples, places of worship, all to other gods. He married outside of the Israelite people as, a, as the king of Israel. He was the one setting the example. He was the one um, uh, with, with the responsibility. And so like with any organization, like with any country today or way back then, if the leaders don't set the right example, then people, people follow the bad example. If the, if, the, if the right example isn't set, then the right example isn't there to be followed. And so immediately when the king marries Jezebel, it gives the green light for others to, to start picking and choosing which of God's laws they follow. Well, it's all right for the king to go and do this, so it must be all right for us. And immediately we see, we see bad things happening. And Ahab makes a huge mistake in Ahab's time, we read in verse 34, Hill of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. So King Ahab gives his blessing to the rebuilding of Jericho. You remember Jericho, the city that Joshua led his, his army around? And day after day, they went round beating drums and blowing trumpets and making noise, and eventually the walls of Jericho, the impenetrable fortress city, crumbled. They crumbled. And when they crumbled and the troops rushed in, we're told that the, the, the treasures, the silver, the gold, that was taken and put into the storehouse of God. That was taken for God. But there was a warning. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. At this time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. That's a pretty harsh curse, you would think. God makes it absolutely black and white. He couldn't be clearer here. Under no circumstances is Jericho to be rebuilt. It has been destroyed and it will never be rebuilt. Those ruins are going to remain ruins as a testament to the power of God, as a testament to what God does when his people are faithful. Those ruins are significant. Those ruins are necessary. They should be a place where, where God's people can look on and say, I might be going through a difficult time now, I might be in the desert now, but I know that my God has the power to do anything, to change the situation, to break down any walls that are holding me in or preventing me from, from accessing what, what I want to be, where I want to go, what I want to do. I know that my God, if he wills it, he can break down those rules. These ruins were significant. I love talking to some of the people that go to our 12-step groups during the week. They're fascinating. They're incredible people. And they've all got stories. Stories of, of a fortification. The fortification of, of addiction. 
where they, they desperately tried time after time to, to break down the walls, but this thing was there, and they knew that it, just, it, was, it was preventing them from, from moving on in life. It was holding them back. This fortification was there. But one day, one day, the walls crumbled down. And they, they, they managed to, whether it was getting involved in a 12-step group or whether it was a significant event that took place in life, something happened. And their addiction has, has crumbled and it's now in ruins. But they still keep those ruins in their mind. They still talk about what they used to be, what they used to do, because it's part of the process. Now, I'm no expert in, in, in the treatment of addiction, but the number of people who I've spoken to, and they're, they're quite happy to talk about, when I was an addict, this used to happen. This is what used to happen when I was using. They go back to the ruins and they remind themselves not of the fortification, but they remind themselves that those walls have been broken down and they don't want to rebuild them. Because if they rebuild them, they've got to do it all over again and they don't know if that's going to happen. When something significant happens in our life, it is important that we, that we, don't, that we move on, but we don't forget. We don't forget to the point where we can let it happen again. Sometimes it's important to revisit the ruins. God wants the ruins of Jericho to remain. He wants them to stay there. He wants it to stay there so much that he puts this, this curse on the ruins that anyone, anyone who undertakes to rebuild this city will do so at the cost of his firstborn son and the cost of his, last, of his youngest that's a pretty heavy price to pay. But God keeps his promises. God is a God of his word. God doesn't say something and then, ah, oh, I know I said that, but you've done it and all right, it's okay. God is God. And when God says he'll do something, he does it. And so sure enough, when we read about King Ahab in his time, he gave his blessing to the rebuilding of Jericho in direct opposition to God's laws, directly contradicting what God had said and in black and white, as clear as day. And what happens? He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abraham, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now, some scholars say that this was, these were sacrifices at the start of this huge rebuilding project. His firstborn son was sacrificed to Baal. And at the end, when the gates were set in place and the city was complete, the youngest met the same fate. Now, that's conjecture. We don't know. We can't know for sure. But regardless of whether that was in sacrifice to Baal or regardless of whether that was just a coincidence, tragic accidents, what we know is God said it would happen. God said it would happen if, if someone tried to rebuild Jericho and sure enough, it happens. So Ahab, was a, he was a nasty piece of work. He was bad news for Israel. And when you're living in Israel at that time under the rule of King Ahab, you're seeing the, the fabric that has held society together, the, the law that God gave, slowly being unpicked thread by thread. 
But Elijah, Elijah, one of God's chosen prophets, is in Israel at that time. And he recognizes, he recognizes what Ahab is doing. He recognizes the damage being done to God's people. And he speaks to God. He speaks to God and he's sent to Ahab. And in front of King Ahab, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve. So note that. He's, he's saying to his king, I don't serve you. I serve the king of Israel, the one that you're in opposition to. I serve him. I'm choosing my side. I'm not on your side. I'm on God's side. I stand for God, not for you, because the two have been, you've separated so far from God. So he's bold. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So suddenly the king of Israel isn't the one with the authority of God. The king's, he's laid his bed, he's got a lie in it. Elijah is saying, I'm doing this. At my word, through the authority of God, there will be no rain, no dew, for several years. As you can imagine, Ahab wasn't flavor of the month in a royal court. He flees to the mountains. But he does so with God's blessing and with God's instruction. God, in one of the perhaps more bizarre examples in scripture of God using creation, he says, don't worry, Elijah, I've lined up some ravens. They're going to bring bread and meat every morning and every evening and you'll be, you'll be looked after and go far enough into the hills and you'll find a brook that hasn't dried up. It'll be the last one to dry up. So you go and live up there. Ahab won't find you. And while everyone else is suffering and struggling while famine and drought are taking hold of the land, you'll be looked after because I'll make sure you are. And so... Elisha goes off into the hills. And sure enough, ravens come and they bring food and they bring bread and meat and he's got the water from the brook and all is, all is good. Three years later, in chapter 18, three years later, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God says to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I'll send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. But at this point, the famine was so severe, the famine's taken such a hold, food is, is, is almost completely run out. We read that Ahab has decided he's going to go one way and he's going to send Obadiah the other way. And they've gone into the land. They've gone out to look for springs and valleys, to look for, for some, some grass to keep their livestock alive. But there's also an ulterior motive. Ahab wants to hunt and find the one who he says is responsible for all this, Elijah. Suddenly, Elijah is a hunted man. And it's at that moment when God says to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab. I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, what? I'd do a Jonah. I'd try and leg it off to Spain or somewhere. But Elijah was God's prophet. Elijah has seen now for three years, day and night, ravens coming and bringing bread and meat. The stream has kept flowing. Elijah's been looked after. So Elijah has no, no doubt that he needs to honor God. 
Now we know that Ahab had been slaughtering the Lord's prophets. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, while Jezebel, Ahab's wife, was killing off the Lord's prophets. Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. So Obadiah's a bit of a hero. He's taken, he's taken his own life in his hands by doing this, taken a hundred of God's prophets, found two caves, hidden them in there, made sure that they've got food and water they're looked after because he's seen that Jezebel is, is wiping out God's prophets. This is an attempt to wipe God off the face of the earth. She wants to destroy every one of his prophets, one by one, so that Baal can be the God of Israel, so that Baal can be worshipped. And so eventually Ahab goes, presents himself to Obadiah. And Obadiah says, what have I done? I don't want to do this. If I go and say to, say to Ahab, oh, I found him. Ahab's going to accuse me of, of, of harboring you. I can't do this. And so Elijah says, okay, I will present myself to Ahab today. I will go into his presence. I will face him. Not in my own strength, but in the strength of God. Now, this story goes on, and it's a fascinating story. And just like I urged you last week to go home and read the book of Ruth and reflect upon it, I urge you to go, go home and read the rest of, of chapter 18 and on, in, on into the rest of 1 Kings because 1 Kings and 2 Kings are fascinating. They, they, they've got so many stories in them. They're so readable. If you ever struggle with reading scripture, I'd, I'd recommend going and reading 1 and 2 Kings. They're wonderful, wonderful, rich accounts of the history of God's people. But here we've looked at this this complex political situation. As far as Ahab, the king, is concerned, Elijah is the one responsible for all this. Ahab wants Elijah brought in. He'd want to know how Elijah stayed alive this long, where he's been, who's been feeding him, who's been giving him provision. And of course, as one of God's prophets, Jezebel would soon see to it that Elijah would be killed, would be slaughtered. When we talk about the kings, the lawmakers, people who had control over huge swathes of the population, people who had wealth and power, it's very easy to forget that actually they were responsible for each and every individual. You see, when we talk about God's prophets, we can focus on the headline acts, the Elijahs, the Moses, the Joshuas, people like that, and forget that actually there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of nameless individuals who were affected by these situations. We don't know the suffering, possibly the, the loss that was brought about by this famine as a result of Ahab's attempt to install Baal as the god of the people of Israel there was huge suffering brought about. The people of God suffered. The individuals suffered. In Ukraine at the moment, there are individuals 
suffering. Individuals crying out to God, saying, why are you letting this happen? And sometimes, and it's easy to do with history, when we look at a situation, we can see that those in power, they're accountable. Their actions matter. God judges them. And if they make a decision, it's not just going to reflect on them, it's going to affect all the people that they lead. So often we see bad decisions made by leaders. We saw it with, with Donald Trump. Made so many bad decisions. <clears throat> building walls rather than building bridges. Pointing fingers, accusing others rather than holding his own hands up and saying, hey, look, we all make mistakes. We saw it with our own Prime Minister during lockdown, when suddenly, well, what's a party, what's a rule? And, and that makes the rest of us think, well, all right, yeah, I'm confused as well, so I'm just going to go and do my own thing. And we suddenly see a breakdown of, 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 of how people follow rules and laws and interpret them. We see the same thing here. Suddenly, the whole country is shaken because of the decision made by Ahab. If you're in a position of authority in work or maybe you're head of your family, whatever it might be, every decision you make, do it prayerfully. Every decision you make, do it with a peace that you're doing what God would have you do. When we have outside influences trying to turn our heads and, and, and make us do something which we, we, we don't think is right, don't do it. Because all of us, for someone, will be a role model. For everybody in this room right now, you will be a role model. It might be to one of the kids out there in, in Quest or Adventurers or, or the, the nursery group, the toddler group. Or it might be someone, a, a next door neighbour. It might be someone you teach if you're a teacher. It could be a grandchild, a child. It could be a niece or a nephew. It could be anybody. There will be somebody in your life to whom you are a role model. And you might not even be aware and so if you go straight head first like a bull in a china shop making decisions without consulting God you're setting an example to somebody that it's okay to go through life not consulting God the more we talk about well I was praying and I just really feel this is right the more that's going to be heard by other people they're going to recognise that actually this isn't just something you do on a Sunday morning. Faith is something that is living and active and impacting on your life. It's so important. It's a way of loving others. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. But if we talk about our God, if we talk about prayer, if we talk about the way that we apply our faith to our everyday life, then it makes it relevant to other people. It means that, that faith becomes real. Faith has a purpose. It's not just a word. Because God cares for each and every individual. And to finish up this morning, we're going to leave the political situation. We're going to leave Elijah just about to present himself to Ahab. And I'll let you go and read to find out whether he was slaughtered on the spot or whether God worked another miracle. 
And we're just going to go back to chapter 17. Because those of you who've got the Bible open in front of you would have noticed that I jumped a significant passage. You see, eventually, the brook that was providing water to Elijah dried up when he was up in the hills. And so, the word of the Lord came to him, and he's told, go at once to Zapharath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So off he goes. He's obedient. He goes and he finds a widow. Now, as we heard last week, this was a patriarchal society. Being a widow was, was hard. There was no real status. There was no sort of um, uh, state support or anything like that. Being a widow was a tough existence. And so in times of famine, as we're finding now in, in a time of a cost of living crisis, suddenly people have less to give, but the need is greater. One of the challenges faced as a church is that we've got less and less money being given, but we've got greater and greater needs that we'd like to address. And that's where we call for faith, that as we give, so God will bless. This lady suddenly has God's prophet. People probably wonder where he'd been for the past few years, but God's prophet suddenly walks into her town and goes up and speaks to her. And he says, bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink. And as she was going to get it, he called, oh, and uh, uh, bring me, please, um, a piece of bread. She says, as surely as the God lives, uh, as your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks. And this is where we, we see how desperate the situation has become. Get this. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, I have nothing. You're coming here asking me for, for some water, which is a, a scarce commodity, and you want, you want bread? Bread? I don't even know you. You're asking me to give you bread. Listen, this is a situation. I'm off to gather some sticks so I can make a fire, so I can take the handful of flour I've got and mix it with the olive oil and make a dough and bake it. And my son, the dependent I've got, as well as being a widow, I've got someone depending on me. We're going to eat that, and that's it. That's it. We, we're dead. That is the last morsel we have in the world. We are prepared to die. Let's not read those words and sort of gloss over it and skip over it. Because this is massively significant. The desperation. This is someone who is, who is so far into the desert and the parched land that, that they've passed the point of no return. They can't even return back. They can't go back to see the ruins because they're so far into it. All they can do is face death. And this lady has been through the emotional and the psychological torment and turmoil of accepting that she's going to have to watch her own son waste away and die. What does Elijah say to her? He says three of the most significant words in Scripture. We see it time and time again. They passed the words of Jesus many, many times. They've passed the words of other people many, many times in Scripture. Elijah says to her, 
Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't know what you're going through in life right now. I don't know what sort of desert or parched land you find yourself in. I don't know if you're going home to look in, in the kitchen cupboard or going to work tomorrow knowing it's your last day or, or, or the rent's due and you look at your bank account and think, I, I cannot see a way through this. I don't know what's going on in your lives. But what I do know is that in, the, in those times of desperation, in those times where we've, we've run out of ways where we, by which we can help ourselves, God says, don't be afraid. That's an easy thing to do, uh, to hear, an easy thing to say. But it's a really hard thing to do. But God does not want fear to govern our lives. God wants faith to govern our lives. We've got to put our faith above our fear. We've got to have faith that God will provide, that God will take the, 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 the handful of flour and the drop of oil and that he will use it to do more than we dare ever imagine. And sure enough here, Elijah says, go home and do as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So he calls on this lady to have faith. He says to her, go home and do what you're going to do. I assume he's not referring to the, the sit and wait for death bit. I think he's referring more to the gathering of the sticks and the making the fire and the preparing of the bread. But he says, trust in God. The Lord, your God, says the flour will not run out. The oil will not run dry until the rains return, until things start growing again, until we return to a time of, of provision where you can plant your own crops and you can harvest them and you can feed yourself, until we get to one of those times where we suddenly look around and think, hey, look, everything's okay. I'm looking after myself. I'm all right. And it's in those times we run the risk of thinking, I don't need God after all. I'm doing okay. But this lady's on her knees. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. You see, God does not give up on us. Even when we find ourselves with no hope, there is always hope through Jesus the writer of Hebrews says reminds us that God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you that was true for this, this lady she was prepared to have her last meal and then she'd resigned herself to death, resigned herself to seeing her son waste away we cannot imagine what she was going through but that resignation turned into rejoicing when she was told, God's not given up on you. He won't let that flour run out. He won't let that oil run dry. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. And so whatever we are going through, individually or corporately, as a country, as a, as a church, whatever we face, let's face it with faith. Let's face it with a faith that overpowers the fear that we might have. Let's be honest and bring our fears to God and listen to him say time and time again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but trust in me. 
because never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. When we go through the desert and the parched land, we don't go it alone. God is with us and God will provide. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and all the goodness and reassurance that it contains. And Lord, as we read this account of some of the story of Elijah, Lord, we are reminded of your love for us. We are reminded that life might not always be a straight path, a bed of roses, an easy ride. In fact, it was never meant to be. But life is also not a lonely journey because you are with us. You provide for us. And although sometimes we might be taken to the point where we're on our very knees, kneeling in the dirt and crying out, Father, sometimes that's when we meet you. Sometimes that's the most significant moment of our lives when we're kneeling, surrounded by ruins and you meet us there. And so, Father, whatever we're going through today, whatever we face this week, we pray that you will, you will be with us, that you will give us an acute sense of your presence, that you will give us clear guidance in our decisions And that when we come into contact with others who maybe are in a dreadful situation themselves, we can be the ones who say, do not be afraid. Don't be fearful. I'm going to pray for you. Lord, give us boldness in our faith. Give us the peace of mind in our decisions that peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, use us, we pray, and be with us on our journey. In Jesus' name, amen.
So please do join us for tea and coffee afterwards, but right now, let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, thank you for your presence, and thank you, Lord, that you never abandon us, you never leave us, you never forsake us. And Father, may that, be, that truth be on our hearts as we go out into the world this week, whatever we face, the conversations, the decisions, everything that we do, Lord, may we remember that we are called to be the ones who set the example that you want set in this world. Father, we don't carry that responsibility lightly. We carry it with a real gravity and with a real appreciation for what you've called us to do. So bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.